Please read with me on your handout as I read aloud, Ruth chapter four. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there, than the next of kin of whom Boaz had spoken came passing by. So Boaz said, come over friend, sit down here. And he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. He then said to the next of kin, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our kinsman, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me so that I may know. For there is no one prior to you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this, the next of kin said, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the next of kin said to Boaz, acquire it for yourself, he took off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malon, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance, in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate along with the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse the father of David. Now these are the descendants of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron. 
Hezron of Ram, Ram of Aminadab, Aminadab of Nashon, Nashon of Salmon, Salmon of Boaz, Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse, and Jesse of David. Let's pray for the sermon together. Dear Almighty Lord, we ask that you would fill me with your spirit of truth and goodness, that I might speak a word of truth and goodness from you. And we ask that you would open our ears and open our hearts to receive that word from you. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So in this sermon series, we've looked a lot at characters and what characters in the book have to teach us about Christian life. And we've talked about Boaz, and we've talked about Naomi, and we've talked about Ruth. And every week I offer the same caution. We have to be careful in doing this because a lot of times people misread the Old Testament because they see a character, an Israelite character, and they assume, yeah, that's what it means to follow the Lord. It's not always the case. But I've made arguments each week for why in these cases there are hints that we are supposed to look at these examples. And we're going to continue that today. In our last chapter, our last sermon on Ruth, we're going to focus on one character in this chapter, and that is Boaz. 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 Jesus has not been born yet. And he is such a Christian. We need examples like Boaz. Boaz teaches us so much in this chapter about what it means to follow our Redeemer. So before we dive into three observations, I've got to explain a bit about some things going on here. And by explain, I basically mean tell you a lot of things that we don't know. Okay. So, Naomi had land? And why is she selling it now? And why has the narrator not told us about this until now? We don't really know. Why does Boaz do it in this weird two-stage way? Okay, you want to buy the land? Yes. Also, Ruth comes along with that. We don't know, really, why he does it that way. There are different theories. In fact, here's something interesting. We don't even know if that's what's going on. So there are different textual traditions here. And in one of them that ends up in our Bibles, it says this. The day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth the Moabite. There is another textual tradition in the Hebrew text that says this. The day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, I am also acquiring Ruth the Moabite. And that changes things a lot as to why the Redeemer, would-be Redeemer, acts as he does. And we're not entirely sure which one is right. We're not sure exactly how these laws work. I'm going to say more about that today. We don't know exactly how they work. I'm going to make a lawyer's argument today, like I did last week. But here's why I'm drawing your attention to all that we don't know. This was kind of a major thrust of my sermon series on Revelation. 
You do not have to understand every detail perfectly to understand God's word for you. There can and always will be a lot of mystery, even at the same time that there's a lot of truth. And that doesn't mean the truth is vague, but it's going to be a specific truth for us. And I think there's a lot of truth for us in this chapter in what Boaz is doing. We understand enough. We understand enough. Here's what we understand. Here's what we understand. I called the sermon Boaz. What did I say? Boaz said yes. Boaz said yes. Here's what I mean by that. What did he, what did he say yes to? He said yes, regardless of how the other details play out, that he would be Naomi's and Ruth's redeemer. He would pay the cost for the property of the field so that it would stay in their family. He said yes that he would be Ruth's husband. And not only that, he was going to be her husband within the Leveret marriage law so that he was going to raise up children, offspring, that would carry on not his name, but the name of Elimelech and Malon who have died. He said yes to others instead of himself. Philippians 2.4 reminds me profoundly of Boaz. Philippians 2.4 says, Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That is the kind of yes Boaz is saying. All right, three observations. Boaz said yes when he didn't have to. Question mark. Okay, here's what I mean. Did Boaz have a legal obligation to redeem the land and or to marry Ruth? I am not an expert in lawyerly ways in ancient Israel. I don't think Boaz had to. I don't think he had to do this. In fact, I don't even know if the next of kin that we don't get his name, if he had to do it either. Now, here's my argument. I want to make a couple points. And this is important. Whether or not he had to do it is very important. I don't think he had a duty to do it. And here's the basic idea. We got to review a little bit of what we said last week, and I'll go really quick. There are two different sets of laws. There's redemption and there's love right marriage. And redemption has to do with property that you buy back. It has to do with if your relative sells themselves as an indentured servant to a resident alien, you can buy them back. It has to do with things like vengeance in blood feuds. It has to do with obligations mainly related to property and paying the cost to redeem, to buy back what has been lost from one of your relatives. A second law is leveret marriage, which I put down on your handout, which is Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. And this is the law that says, if a brother in a household dies and there's some other brother in the household, that brother will marry his widow and raise up children in the name of to perpetuate the line of the dead brother. They're different laws. Now, here's my lawyerly argument. As far as I can tell, I don't know all the case laws. As far as I can tell, the one set of laws, redemption, seems to apply a lot more broadly. It talks about your next of kin, talks about your uncle, your uncle's son, anyone who is related in the line by flesh. Okay, it applies broadly. There is a broad duty. So maybe 
this anonymous next of kin had some sort of duty to redeem property. Maybe, probably. And then maybe Boaz did after he said, no, we're not sure. Sure, maybe that was the case. But the law about leveret marriage, as far as I can tell, is much narrower. It says if brothers reside together. So this is not talking about brothers broadly. This is talking about like your actual physical, biological brother in your household. That's where that duty applies. So I don't think Boaz had to marry Ruth. We'll talk about why this is important in a minute. My second argument is, as we've talked about throughout, the book really goes to great lengths to emphasize that Ruth is a Moabite. Is a Moabite. Is a Moabite. Is a Moabite. I can't remember how many times, but it's there several times. And we talked about why that's so important that there is a law in Deuteronomy that says no Moabite or Ammonite shall come into the assembly of the Lord. I think it's a big deal that Ruth is a Moabite. I don't think, I'm not sure, I don't think this leveret marriage duty would necessarily or in an obvious way apply to a Moabite. If it did, it wouldn't make such a big deal of her being a Moabite. All right, why does this matter? Why does it matter that Boaz didn't have to say yes? When I was in law school, I wrote my senior thesis on the topic of how to think about Christians being lawyers and going to court and litigating in light of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And the second example he gives there as he says, and if someone sues you for your cloak, give them your tunic as well. That seemed to me to implicate litigation in a pretty straightforward way. It troubled me. And I spent my senior year in the Harvard Divinity Library researching that, thinking about that, exploring how people had thought about the Sermon on the Mount. And by the end of the year, I was really uneasy. I didn't have firm conclusions, but I'd learned a lot. My views had changed. And I said, you know, What's at stake in many ways with this is forgiveness. And I think we're called to forgiveness. So maybe we are called often, many times, always. I don't know. Maybe we often are called to forego the rights we might assert in litigation. I, I, I'm not sure. And as I struggled with this and I was talking to my friends, it was revealing how quickly their minds always went to one place. Their minds always went to this place. They said, so, wait, are you saying we can't be litigators? Here's why that's revealing. That same year I was having those conversations, I went on a retreat with our Christian fellowship, and we were talking about that verse that says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. A friend of mine made a point that sadly I had never thought about before. He said, isn't it kind of remarkable that we all read that verse and we don't run away terrified from money? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, on its face, it suggests that the broad default path is you're going to have big time problems 
in following Jesus if you accumulate wealth, but we read it and we ask this sort of question. So can I or can I not buy X, Y, or Z? Can I or can I not save for retirement? In other words, see the point in both of these stories? The way that our minds and our hearts are inclined to work is this. We want to reduce our ethical life to a series of minimum requirements that we can check off and then be left alone to do things as we please. That's what we're inclined to do. And that is why I think it's amazing that Boaz didn't have to marry Ruth. See, what Boaz does is he teaches us that that is exactly the wrong way to think about ethics and to think about living for Jesus. Think about St. Francis. I love St. Francis. So many times I've had people talk to, read the story and say, so wait, you love St. Francis? Are you saying I have to do that? No, I'm not saying you have to do that. That is the wrong way to think about it. But the way I reply is, why would you not want to be more like St. Francis? Why would you not want to be more like the kind of love that Boaz shows here? Why would you not want to be more conformed to the way Jesus is? So instead of thinking about all of life in terms of the bare minimum requirements I have to check off and then I can be left alone, why don't we think about life as sanctification? Why don't we think about life as being inspired and striving and wanting to change and being more like Jesus? That's what Boaz was doing. He wasn't asking whether he had to. Instead of, do I have to, why don't we ask, can I? Can I follow you in this way? Can I possibly do this? Will this work? And that's what Boaz is doing. Point number two about Boaz. Boaz said yes, and he didn't see the fruits of his decision during his lifetime. So here's what I'm trying to get at. What did Boaz's yes lead to? You know what the last word of the book is? I think it is in English. It is in Hebrew. Pretty sure it's the same. It is. David. David. Scholars often note the significant placement of this book within the Old Testament. In our English Bibles, it is placed between Judges and 1 Samuel as a sort of bridge. They often use the word bridge. I like something like launching pad. It launches a new chapter, a new history, a new story in the history of Israel, which is what? The kingdom, the monarchy. Now, of course, there are all kinds of problems with the monarchy, but it's revealing that the last word of this book is David, because David, for all of his problems, is held up as an ideal in many ways. He is the one to whom God promised that his descendants would be on the throne forever, and God was faithful to that promise. Who is the descendant of David that is on the throne forever? Jesus. Jesus is always called son of David in the Gospels. So what Boaz's yes led to was David and then ultimately Jesus. 
But here's the thing. Boaz probably didn't know this. Let's use a little historical imagination. Boaz, his life was farming. These four chapters that we read from his perspective are something like, hey, I got married. Okay, I had a child. This is glorious. This is great. And then what? He went back to farming. Or did he? The, uh, there's a midrash, which is ancient Jewish commentaries. A lot of times using some imagination, a lot of times using exegesis in the spirit of things, historical imagination, like I'm doing now. The midrash on the book of Ruth says that Boaz died on his wedding night. Now, I don't know if he did or not. They didn't know if he did or not either. But here's the point. Maybe he did. Or maybe he lived, what, five, 10, 30 more years? I don't know, but it was probably relatively anonymous and involved a lot more farming. He didn't see David being born. Probably not. And if he did, he probably didn't live long enough to see what David would become. From Boaz's perspective, this was just getting married and having a child. And there's more. Remember, from Boaz's perspective, what he was doing in doing this was basically giving up his name. He says this in chapter four. He's marrying Ruth to raise up children in the name of, to perpetuate the line of, to further the genealogy of Elimelech, Malon, Naomi's family. That's what he's doing. Here's what I love about this. This beautifully illustrates, beautifully illustrates this little verse. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. You know the thing about Boaz? You know why this brilliantly illustrates that? Who ends up in the genealogy at the end of the book? Is it Elimelech? Is it Malon? It's Boaz. Not only that, but it's Boaz's family. It's his father. It's his grandfather. Not only that, but the same is true of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1 where it's giving the genealogy of Jesus. No, wait, why? Because you said he was doing it in the name of Elimelech. He was. But see, genealogies in the Bible, they're not trying to trace strictly legal claims. On the books, in like the registrar's office in whatever town, the genealogy would look different. It would say Elimelech, it would say Malon. Not in scripture. In scripture, it's making a theological claim. The theological claim is Boaz gave up his life. God gives it back to him when he puts his name in the genealogy. And what's amazing about that too, you know who doesn't appear in the genealogy? The guy whose name we don't even know, who said no, he wouldn't act as redeemer And he did that because he wanted to perpetuate his family name. 
he doesn't show up in the genealogy either. There is a story that I heard. I was listening to a sermon on the book of Ruth by a pastor named Tim Keller, who preaches at Redeemer Church, and he told this story. I thought it was fantastic, and I went and did a little digging on the internet, and I looked it up. I want to tell you the story of a modern-day example of this Boaz phenomenon. There is a church in Harlem called Bethel Gospel Assembly. It got started in this way. In 1915, there were two young women, 15 years old, that attended a revival meeting at a church in Midtown Manhattan, and they were converted to Christianity. They wanted to start attending that church, but they were told that they could not because they were black. So there was a white woman in that congregation, and she decided that she would travel regularly to Harlem to disciple the two young women. Her name was Lillian Krieger. She was engaged at the time. Her fiance told her, if you do this, I am going to break off our engagement. She was distraught. She opened her Bible and she read Isaiah 54.1, which says this, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. She followed God and her fiance broke off the engagement. Two years later in 1917, her and the two young women started a church together that consisted at first of 12 people in Harlem. As of 2003, Bethel Gospel Assembly was a church with more than 1,200 members in a building worth almost $20 million. The church that had said no to the two young women in Midtown Manhattan still existed as well in 2003. Glad Tidings Tabernacle had 600 members, so half of the other, of whom 90% were black or Hispanic. <laughs> At the 85th anniversary celebration of the founding of Bethel Gospel Assembly, the church decided they wanted to celebrate that anniversary by extending forgiveness to Glad Tidings Tabernacle and the churches worshipped together to celebrate that anniversary. To me, this is the most interesting part of the story. The woman who traveled to Harlem to disciple the two girls integral to the founding of the church, Lillian Krieger, I did a Google search because I wanted to know what happened to her. Can't find anything out about her. Can't find anything out about her. That's Boaz. She may not even make it into a genealogy ever, long after her death. She may have to wait until the age to come to receive her reward. And some of us might have to as well. 
Point number three about Boaz. Boaz said yes as redeemer because he knew the redeemer, question mark. I've said before, this is an ambiguous story, an ambiguous narrative in many ways. There's a lot of things that we would like to know that we don't know. One thing that I really want to know is why did Boaz say yes? How was he able to do that? Doesn't tell us. But I want to argue that there are two or three hints here. First, maybe, just maybe, he said yes because of his parents. What? What? If you look at the genealogy in Matthew 1, you know what it says Boaz's parents are? His dad's name was Salmon, and his mom's name was Rahab. Now look, 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 look. Scholars try to piece together the history, and they look at the number of generations, and they look at the narrative, and they map it onto the amount lapsed of time, and they look at the archaeology, and they say, look, th these genealogies are probably stylized, meaning there's a lot of generations left out. It's not exhaustive. It's not all-inclusive. So Salmon and Ruth may not have been Boaz's actual biological parents. There might have been generations in between, but it is interesting that Matthew says that in some way, shape, or form, from a theological point of view, Boaz's mother was Rahab the prostitute, a non-Israelite who is blessed for her faithfulness. Maybe he learned example of how to love Moabites from his mom. Here's another idea. I sketched out yesterday at men's breakfast a dilemma that I've been wrestling with for a while. And the dilemma is something like this. The Bible, for the most part, tells us these fantastic, fabulous stories of great men and women doing great things. And a lot of times, these great men and women doing great things are kings, or patriarchs, or military leaders, or judges, or prophets. But what about the little guy? Okay, what about the farmer just slaving away 16 hours a day, dead tired, nothing glamorous, no opportunities to like further himself and have these great, amazing stories. Like what about the person today? I'm always aware. I mean, forgive me for, I mean, no, this is a buzzword. I'm always aware of my privileged position. I get to, to wrestle with things like what career path should I choose? You know, most people don't ever get to think that way. So I always wrestle about like, what about like the person that changes sheets in a motel for 14 hours a day and is a single mom and goes home and like doesn't have time for anything? Like what, what does the Bible say to her about how to follow Jesus, about how to be sanctified, about how to become more Christ-like? What does the Bible say to her? I think it says a lot. But here's a passage that I mentioned yesterday that I think is incredibly important. Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to read this to you. It's on your handout. 
Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances, that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land you are about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently so that it may go well with you and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Keep listening. Keep listening. In fact, I don't need to say that. It says that. Hear, O Israel! It says that itself. Why am I trying to add things? Hear, O Israel! The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. You see how that speaks to the manual labor? You see how that speaks to the farmer? You see how that speaks to Boaz before this story happened or the woman who changes the sheets? What does it say? It says, keep always present, ever present, on your lips, in your mind, the words of God the commands of God. May your life be a prayer. May your life be a meditation. Yes, you may be changing sheets, but you have the freedom to view that through the lens, like we talked about today, of serving the one true God. Here's the first thing that Boaz says when we encounter him in the book of Ruth. Chapter 2. Just then Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. They answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, to whom does this young woman belong? Do you see the lens through which Boaz asks questions? Through which Boaz perceives situations? That, I would suspect, is someone that takes Deuteronomy 6 very seriously. He comes into the fields and he doesn't see, oh my gosh, you did that row entirely wrong. <laughs> and your tools need to be sharpened. Okay, he may get there. But the first thing he says, because this is what he's been saying to himself and thinking on the road, walking to the field is, the Lord be with you guys. So I suspect that Boaz's ability to say yes in this dramatic, profound way, to take this step to marry Ruth, was born out of a lot of little yeses every day along the way. I'm guessing there were years of small victories and training that led up to his ability to say yes. Third point, the verses 14 and 15 are fascinating and ambiguous, and I love them. Let me read them for you. Ruth 14 and 15. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin. That next of kin is Goel. I, I don't like next of kin. It's Redeemer. Without Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer and a nourisher of your old age. Okay, who do you think it's talking about right now? 
in the context of the narrative, it's probably talking about Boaz. That's the redeemer. Blessed be you, Naomi. You've got Boaz redeeming you. That's what seems to be going on, but we got to keep reading. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And she's nodding along. Yes, Boaz will be. But then they keep going. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has born him. Wait, what? Who's the redeemer? The redeemer is a child to come. Now, in this context, maybe it means something like the child Obed that Ruth is going to bear. You know what Obed means? Probably means something like worker or one who serves. But I think that ambiguity is telling and fascinating. How is that child her redeemer? That ambiguity is so significant because I think what it suggests to us as Christians is the fact that there is a redeemer besides Boaz in the story. And I wonder, by that ambiguity, I just wonder if it's not pointing us to the fact in some ways that Boaz could say yes to redeem because he was participating in the work of another redeemer who came after him. I think that's the challenge for us to see. What I think I want to say today, most of all, what I think ties this sermon together and the whole chapter together and maybe the whole book together is that Boaz and Ruth leave us a legacy and not just their physical progeny and the genealogy and King David, but enduring legacy of this witness that we've been examining for the past four weeks. Because of their lives, because of their loyalty, their goodness, their audacious faith, their redemption, all of these things because they lived in and walked in and participated in the only life which is life, the one Redeemer who is the Redeemer, who is Jesus our Lord. Amen.